Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are dependent today upon your Holy Spirit for all things. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would come in full measure into our hearts. Father, your Spirit always seeks to and uplift and to proclaim the name of Christ. So, Father, today we ask that Christ would be magnified. And, Father, that we would see Christ for who He is. Lord, there are so many distractions that we face on a daily basis. So many petty things, insignificant things that draw our attention from Christ. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for not valuing Him as we ought. And Father, today, by Your grace, work in our hearts that we would value Christ more. That we would see Him who bears the majestic glory to be our Lord and our King. Father, transform us today so that as we leave this place, we will leave revived, we will leave different. Father, work in our midst as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through the end of chapter 1, and we're going to get through about half of it today. 2 Peter chapter 1, again, we are looking at how Peter calls us or, or shows us how we can have power as pilgrims. Again, 1 Peter is written to strangers and exiles, foreigners, those who do not belong on this earth. And 1 Peter goes through and, and talks about what it's going to be like, the difficulties we're going to face, the, the, the strength that we find for those different types of things, and, and all of it brought about by the grace of God. In 2 Peter, he now comes to us and writes about how we are to have power. And of course, we find this in verse 3 this power comes through the um, knowledge of Him, through knowing Christ, that we find power as pilgrims in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, as we look particularly in verses 12 through 21, we're going to see the pilgrim's lamp. The pilgrim's lamp. It is amazing to see how God, throughout history, has used His Word to be the very thing that throws and brings light into the darkness. We can go back and see that the, the world began to emerge from the dark ages through the ministry of this man known as John Wycliffe. He was 
what is often referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. He lived from 1330 to 1384. This was right at, when we look at history, at the end of the Dark Ages. And he was actually pivotal in providing a way out of the Dark Ages. What was it that he did? It was his desire that everyone be able to read the Bible in their own language, particularly in England. At that time, the Bible was only written in Latin. It was only available to those who knew Latin. And frankly, not very many people knew Latin in those days. Not many people could read it all. And so Wycliffe desired, Wycliffe desired to have the Bible translated into English. And as a result of that, he, he was spurned by the church. He was persecuted. He died, and as a result of an act saying that he was a heretic, they actually dug his body up and burned it again. All because he wanted light to come into the darkness. We see that this emergence from darkness is seen in the life of John the Baptist. There had been 400 years between the end of the Old Testament, the last prophet, Malachi, prophesying, and the time of John the Baptist. And for that 400 years, there was no light of the Word of God. They had the Old Testament, but there was no prophecy being given. And then John the Baptist comes and he starts preaching repentance. He starts baptizing And Jesus remarks of John that as he comes and is giving the word of God to people, he says that you sent to John, he's talking to the Pharisees, he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. And this is what John the Baptist did. He was a burning and shining lamp. We even see this in Israel's history after they had been exiled and taken out of the discipline of God upon them for their idolatry. They were now coming back into the nation. And we have Nehemiah and Ezra both involved in, in bringing about and rebuilding the city. Nehemiah particularly involved in rebuilding the walls of the city. Ezra involved in bringing about a revival of the Word of God. And we see in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 8, one of the capstone moments was that they found the book of the law and they read from that book clearly and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading out of darkness light comes through the word of God and even as we were to look into creation in the beginning God created the heavens the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and doing what is it that brings light? And God what? Said. Let there be light. And there was light. It is the Word of God that provides light in darkness. This has been the consistent pattern of God throughout history that He brings light through His Word into the darkness. Now, we live in a world of darkness. There's no doubt about that. And in fact, the darkness that we face can be imposing. It can be threatening. 
And particularly in our world today, it seems as though the darkness is growing. In fact, there's one positive aspect to the darkness, and that is that those who are children of light feel less at home in the darkness. It makes us feel unwelcome. It reminds us of our status as pilgrims, that the world is becoming darker and darker. And so Peter is going to turn here in these verses, in verses 12 through 21, and he is going to remind us of our lamp. He's going to call us as pilgrims to look to the lamp, which is the Word of God, as our hope as we walk through this darkened world. He's going to show us that we must turn to the lamp of God's Word for light in this darkened world. Look with me. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There are three things that I'd like us to consider about the pilgrim's lamp, and we're going to look at two of them this morning, and we'll finish up next week with a third. And the first is the necessity of the pilgrim's lamp. We see this in verses 12 through 15, the necessity of the pilgrim's lamp. Now, what we have to recognize and what Peter is doing here is after he has called us to pursue the virtues that he discussed in verses um, uh, 5 and following up through verse 12, which is particularly described by faith working through love, after he describes these immeasurable blessings that we have, he finds it important to note to remind his readers In fact, that's the first thing we see is that the pilgrim's lamp is given to us to be a reminder of God's transformative grace. In fact, if you look in verses 12 through 15, you see, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these things, 
Verse 13, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And then in verse 15, he talks about how he's going to make every effort so that they would be able to recall these things. Peter is focusing on the necessary requirement for him as an apostle to remind God's people of what God's grace does. It's a clarion call that we must not neglect sanctification. That's the big theological word for being made holy. And again, we talked about this last week, how it can be easy for us to become myopic or singular focused so that we're so nearsighted that we forget what it means to be saved. That we can focus on justification by faith through grace and we can laud those wonderful truths and we can rejoice in them and yet still neglect to be transformed. To recognize that we have been saved and are being saved by the transformation of God's grace in our hearts. And so this is what Peter is saying. Lewis, I need to remind you of these things. This is a note for us to, to recognize that it can be easy for us to forget what God has done and then to not live in light of that. So many things in this world today vie for our attention and vie for the efforts of our minds. I, I know what it's like in the professional world. It's a constant pressure to essentially almost be on call 24-7. There's a constant 24-hour media cycle that keeps things in front of our minds. There are concerns and cares on our hearts that come in every single day, and it can be so easy to let those things crowd out the most important thing about us, that we are children of God by His grace. And so Peter is saying, listen, I need to remind you, always remind you. I need to stir you up by way of reminder. I'm making every effort so that you would recall these things. Now Peter is saying these things not to clamp down hard on his readers. In fact, notice what he says in verse 12. Though for I intend to always remind you of these things, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. The first thing that Peter is recognizing here is that his, his readers, those whom he's writing to, are established in the faith. They have genuine, life-changing faith within them. It's interesting he uses the term establish them. And there's, there's actually the, the Greek word has two meanings. First of all, to be established means to be firmly fixed and unmoving. He is speaking encouragingly to his readers. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are on the sure foundation. All other ground is sinking sand, but Christ is the solid rock. And so founded upon that solid rock, we can find hope We can have a sure and steady anchor for our soul that when we live in a world that is filled with darkness and turmoil and difficulty, we are established. Now again, it's important for us to note that as we've seen throughout this passage that Peter is not saying we establish ourselves. Again, he's he's pointing to these virtues and saying we need to be reminded of them, but those virtues are not the things that establish us. It is God who establishes us. 
The tense of the verb here is passive. It's a passive tense verb. So what we have to recognize, is, as particularly we looked at last week, he tells us to make our calling and election sure. And then the point of that is, if you're practicing these qualities, you will never fall, he tells us in verse 10. That means we're established. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 6 through 7a, that he was sure of this one thing, that God, he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Why are they established? Because they are all partakers with the Apostle Paul of grace. This work that God has produced within us, it is a hope because Christ is alive. Notice what he says here. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians, this is the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. You know what the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 is about? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Christ has risen from the dead. That we have this sure foundation that death itself could not stop our Savior. And so, based upon that reality, what is the effect in us as believers? We're steadfast. We're immovable. And in that steadfastness and that immovability, we are abounding in what? The work of the Lord. You see how this foundation provides a hope for us to move forward. And so, Peter is saying, you know these things. You're established in the truth. The second thing that this establishment does is it supports us. It bears up underneath a load. You know, it's one thing if you have a a foundation established in the ground for a house, but if that foundation is weak, if it's crumbling, if you build a house upon a poor foundation, what is eventually going to happen to the house? It's going to fall down. Our foundation is firm. It supports us. Remember in 1 Peter, Peter is telling his readers that they're going to face death. They're going to face persecution. They're going to face difficulty from even authorities that are capricious and harsh. They're going to face a world that hates them. How do you bear up underneath something like that? And the answer is, you can't, but Christ can. Christ in you can. The grace of God is the firm foundation for facing all of these things. So when Peter says that we know these truths and we are established in them, it is a point of hope. God has always provided a way for His sufficient grace to support us underneath the weight that we face. That's what it means to be established. I don't know what tomorrow may bring for you. I don't know what tomorrow may bring for me. Maybe we can have some idea. Maybe you can look forward and you see maybe a looming financial crisis. 
Maybe you look at your week coming up and you know that there's going to be a difficult project at work or someone hard to deal with. Maybe you look forward to in your week and you worry about how you're going to share Christ with your coworkers and friends. I don't know what your week holds. You may have some idea, but in reality, you don't know what your week will hold. But you know what I do know? That in Christ, if you're in Him by faith, you are established. You have a firm foundation so that no matter what your week may bring, God's sufficient grace is there. This should change our attitude towards the things that we face on a daily basis. I'm sure you guys have seen these stories about banks failing. I was talking about this this week with someone, and another bank you know, had to be saved this week. And, and you begin to wonder, well, what about my investments? What about my money? What about all these things? Listen, you came naked into this world, and you're going to leave without anything. You know who supports you in between coming into the world and passing from this world? Your Savior. And He never fails. So this is a wonderfully hopeful thing that we are established. And what is it that we are established in? We are established in the truth. This is a foreign concept to our world today, truth. Everyone is debating the idea of truth, whether truth is, is objective or whether it's subjective. I mean, we see this today. Everyone is telling you, you need to live your truth. What does that even mean? There's only one truth. And so Peter is pointing his readers to the fact that they're established in the truth. But not only that, notice what he says. It's in the truth that you have, that you possess, that you own. It's something that, that we are able to look to because it is ours by God's grace. So Peter is seeking, as he's going to point us in just a few moments to that lamp, he's seeking to remind us of what God's transformative grace is doing. It's established us, providing a sure foundation, supporting us through the difficulties of this world, and then pointing us to the grace or to the truth of God in Christ. We own that. We have that. No one can take that away from us. And so, again, Peter is saying, I intend to remind you of these qualities. Let me ask you, do you seek to remind yourself of these qualities? I think oftentimes we find ourselves in trouble with with care and concern and anxiety and fear and, and all the things that happen in life. We find ourselves concerned with those things because we're not reminding ourselves of the grace of God. You know, there's a saying that, that we often hear that he's so heavenly minded, he's of what? No earthly good. We should be like that in the sense that this world is not where we belong. And so by God's grace, we are safe 
from it. When's the last time you sought to remind yourself of what God has done in His grace? There are many ways to do this, and we're going to see the primary way is looking to the Word of God. When's the last time you did that? So the pilgrim's lamp is necessary because it is a reminder of God's transformative grace. But secondly, we see that it's necessary because it is the product of the apostles' earnest efforts. And here we're not just talking about Peter, although it includes Peter, but we're referring to all that the apostles have written. Notice what he says in verse 13. Peter says, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Now, why is he talking about while he's in this body? Well, it's interesting. The word that's used there for body is literally tent. While I'm in this tent. And I think it's important for us to recognize we are just inhabiting these bodies for this time. This is not who we are. We have to keep that in mind. Listen, this, your body is a wonderful gift from God and it's created in His image and we praise God for that. But it is not all that you are. And so Peter recognizes that. He says, listen, I'm just in this tent. A temporary thing. I mean, you know, anybody here like to go camping? I like to go camping. In fact, I like camping so much I got a tent that fits on my truck. All right, it's great. But I'll tell you what, I don't want to live in the tent in my truck all the time. It's a nice temporary place to live. And that's where our bodies are just a temporary place for who we truly are. The immaterial parts of us, our spirit, our soul. We just inhabit this body. He's echoing Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God. Hallelujah. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Anyone familiar with that? The groaning of this tent? You know what? That's when we face aches and pains. I was doing some yard work yesterday, lifting some pavers. My back was hurting a little bit. Few aches and pains. You know what that? What you know what that should do for us? We have a tendency to focus on that and be like, "Oh, I'm getting so old," or "Oh, I hate this pain," or "Oh, I hate what I'm dealing with." Here, Paul gives us hope. It is an opportunity for us to long for our heavenly dwelling. The pains of this earth are given to us to make us want something more, and praise God that more is provided in Jesus Christ. So he says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's the hope that we have as believers. And so Peter makes this note. I just say that because it is an otherworldly way of looking at this life. Peter is exemplifying what it means to be a pilgrim. He recognizes that this body isn't the end-all, be-all of everything. But then he turns to a real concern of his. Look in verse 13. As I'm in this body, I feel, feel it right to stir you up by way of reminder. Why? Because I know 
that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. It's remarkable here to see how Peter is concerned for God's people as he faces his death. Now, we don't know what the particular point here is. There's a lot of different theories about when this statement of Christ is, that he refers to here by Christ is, was given. We do know that when Jesus was on earth and when he was reconciling Peter, he told him that you'll be taken to a place that you don't want to go, that you'll, you'll die from me. And maybe that's what he's referring to here. It's more likely that there had been some other more recent revelation of God to Peter saying the time is soon. The time is soon. And I just think it is an example to us that when Peter is facing the end of his life, his concern is not for himself. His concern is for the church of God. His concern is for his readers in the first century, but ultimately for us today who are beneficiaries of what he's written. Isn't that remarkable? He's about to die. And he thinks, well, I need to make sure I'm reminding God's people of these things. So much so that he is zealous for the task. Look in verse 15. He says, I will make every effort. That is the same word that's used in verse 5. For this reason, make every effort. And then he talks about those virtues. He's zealous for it. He's giving himself over to it. It is the thing that is consuming who he is. Look, I'm going to die, but I need to continue to remind you of this. So how am I going to do this? I'm going to make every effort so that even when I'm gone, after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. What is, what is he talking about? What is he doing to do this? This letter is part of that. And in fact, as we're going to see in just a few moments He's going to turn to talking about the prophetic word which is more fully confirmed than an eyewitness account of the glory of Christ. In other words, it is the word of God that is given to us as the primary way in which we are reminded of what God's grace is doing. Peter is truly exemplifying what Jesus called him to do in John 21. This third time, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Peter denied Christ three times. Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, and this was the charge that Jesus gave after every one of those confrontations, the first time, the second time, the third time, feed my sheep. You realize that what we're doing here today is still the product of Peter obeying the Lord's command. That we are partaking of God's word and we are being fed by it. That Peter, though he is dead, is still reminding us through the word of God which is given to us. So the implication for us today, Peter is is intensely focused on us being reminded of these things. 
Listen, it's been 2,000 years since 2 Peter was written. And yet, what he has written, and particularly what the apostles have written, he's going to, he's going to back up in a second. In fact, in verse 16, he talks about the we, and the we there is referring to all the apostles. He's going to look and say, we are all of them in producing what they are writing, providing a way for us to be reminded of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be transformed by God's grace. So what does that mean for us today? If we are, if we are to truly make every effort to have our faith grow, to be conformed more into the image of Christ, the primary way in which we do that is through the Word of God. You realize Peter is about to die and he says, I'm providing this for you so that you can continue to be reminded. And Peter's death is just one of many deaths that God's people will die for the sake of this Word going forward. So much so that today there are men who will carry Bibles into places where it is forbidden, knowing that the death sentence would be upon them if they were caught. And they continue to do it because the Word of God is that important. So let me ask you, is it that important to you? What he's showing us is that in our effort to live out these things, these virtues, the the grace of God at work within us, our efforts must be biblically shaped and biblically focused. So how do we do this? What requires exposure to God's Word. That means we need to read it. Not just on Sundays. We need to read it every day. You need to read it in the morning and in the evening. And then you need to meditate upon it. It's not just enough to read it. This isn't a novel. This isn't a Tom Clancy book. This is the living Word of God. So we need to meditate on it. And that means we internalize it. We think about it. We consider the implications of what God has said to us today. It means that we Seek to be reproved and rebuked and exhorted from the Word of God through listening to preaching. Your your presence here today is one aspect in which you are pursuing what the apostles have written. But But all of that is useless unless we do the final thing, and that is obey what God has said. James tells us in James chapter 1 that we are to be doers and not hearers only. Deceiving ourselves. It is amazing to me how he points it out because it is so easy for us to think that if I've exposed myself to God's Word, if I have, if I have done these things that I'm supposed to do, I've read it, meditated on it, well then that's enough. Listen, it, you could memorize the entire Bible But if you continue to live as a sinful wretch, it means nothing. The only thing that truly shows the Word is working within you 
is if you do it. We must obey God's Word. But what is the focus of God's Word? What is the substance of God's Word? That Peter is, as we've read just a few moments ago, is given to us as a lamp shining in a dark place that we should pay attention to. What is the substance of the pilgrim's lamp? And that's the first thing we're going to look at. And the first thing we see is that it is a genuine record of Christ's power. Look with me in verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The first thing we see that the word of God is, and particularly Peter is talking about this eyewitness account of the transfiguration of Christ, but Overall, all of God's Word points on every page to Jesus Christ. And what does it show us? It shows us, first of all, that Christ is a powerful Christ. Now, in verse 16, Peter takes the first shot across the bow at some of the false prophets that he's going to call out in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And he denies their accusations that they were likely saying that, listen, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you Christ's power and His coming. Now, the accusation likely was in those days that, that these were fantastic stories that the apostles had said to try to gender support, but that there really wasn't all that much truth in some of the fantastic things that were said. And we have the same thing going on today. There are people who will seek to deny the glorious miracles of Christ. Oh, there's no way he turned water into wine. We know that that's not physically possible. It wasn't possible for him to walk on water. He certainly didn't cause the lame to walk, and he certainly didn't form an eye out of dirt. These are all embellishments that people said to draw attention. So so essentially the idea is Jesus is a good moral teacher, but all this other stuff is just, it's just myth that's been added on. And so there, there was a movement in the late 1800s, early 1900s to do what's called demythologizing the Gospels. Stripping away all this other stuff so that they could find to the true historical Jesus. And Peter is saying, listen, everything I said, it wasn't a myth. It was true. And it was so true that I am coming to you as an eyewitness of someone who saw the power of Christ. This truth of Christ is established in what the apostles are saying. He's an eyewitness. And that transfiguration that he describes, what a display of Christ's power. 
It's not a myth. Now, why is it important that he's talking about that? Because he talks about two things, the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power was that display that is at its heightened point seen in his transfiguration. The coming refers to Christ's coming again. And the point that Peter is making is, look, I am an eyewitness to this majestic glory and power of Christ. And that means that what I say about what he has done means that he will do what he has promised. Jesus is coming again. And that is a reality that Peter is seeking to bring before us. In fact, it is the very denial of Christ's return that forms one of the major issues with the false teachers that he's going to point out. Look in 2 Peter 3, verse 3 through 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's interesting how Peter links the sinful desires, which remember earlier on in chapter 1, we are freed from those things. He links that with the, the teaching that Jesus isn't coming again. What's the link between those two things? Listen, if Christ isn't coming again, then everything that he says in his word, everything that he warns us about, all the consequences for sin, they're not true. So go ahead and live your life however you want to, because Jesus isn't coming back. That's the implication. And so people deny the return of Christ for the very purpose of heaping up unto themselves more permission to sin. But the truth is that just as Jesus and all the things he did are not a myth, just as his resurrection from the dead is not a myth, so his return is not a myth. As Jesus says in Luke 21, 27 through 28, we will see, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with what? Power. And great glory. So what is, the, what is the response to that? That Jesus tells us. When you see these things begin to take place. Straighten up. Live rightly. Raise your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. And so this genuine record of Christ's power now turns into a confirmation of Christ's return. His power and His coming. Again, this term that's used for coming here is the Greek term called perusia. It's a term almost that, that becomes um, in the New Testament a technical term for the second coming of Christ. And so when Peter links these two things together, power and coming. It is both a hopeful and a fearful thing. Hopeful, as we saw that Christ is coming and, and our redemption draw nigh, draws nigh. Hallelujah! Our Savior is taking us out of the world in which we don't belong. 
But it's also a fearful thing. When Christ comes, will he find you ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of him? Remember in, up in our passage last week? Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What will Jesus find in your life when he returns? This is a, a very fearful thing because Christ, when he comes again, he comes to judge sin. This isn't a very popular topic today, but yet it is a topic that is all over the Scriptures. God is holy, and in His holiness, He will judge sin. Even among His people. In Hebrews chapter 10, or those who pretend to be His people, I would say. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of what? Judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Listen, when we come back, if you are just pretending at being a Christian, if you're just a part of the church because it's what you did uh, from a traditional standpoint, or if you're just a part of the church because you think that that's what good people in America do, Christ will come back and if He finds you unfruitful and lacking in the things that Peter is telling us to, there is only one thing you can expect. Fearful judgment. This is a sobering reality that that is written to God's people so that He would root out and find those who are not His people among His people and warn them of the consequences of rejecting Christ. Listen, when... Peter says that he has the that he made known the power of Christ. Is there anyone or any force in this universe that is more powerful than our God? There is going to be no place to turn for refuge if you come under the gaze of Christ's judgment because you've rejected Christ. He is your only refuge. And if you turn from him, There's only one thing to expect. How is Peter so certain of this? Well, he goes on and describes the transfiguration. He speaks of how he was an eyewitness of Christ's majesty. So what we see finally is that this confirmation of Christ's return provides a proclamation of Christ's glory. This term majesty is a very interesting term. It refers to someone who holds kingly or monarchical reign and power. And it actually refers to someone who is of all power. There is no power greater than his. We actually see this illustrated in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, uh, we find um, the apostles preaching and calling people to turn from sin, repent, and to turn to Christ. 
And this is happening in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there was this great temple to a god who's referred to as Artemis in Acts chapter 19. And there's this guy, Alexander the coppersmith, and he starts listening to what the apostles are saying. And, and they're essentially, he's realizing, if they're telling, me to, telling people to turn from, from their sin and to turn to Christ, they're telling people to turn away from Artemis and to trust in Jesus. And guess what Alexander made his living doing? Selling little copper pieces of Artemis. So it's going to start hitting his bottom line pretty soon. So what does he do? Well, he rabbles up a crowd. And they go and they take the disciples and they take them into the, um, take them into the, the, the square there. And there's this mob scene where they're going to lynch the, the apostles. And when Alexander makes his charge to them, notice what he says in Acts chapter 19, 27. This is why these men are so dangerous. There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. The same word that Peter uses here for majesty. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Now this, this is really interesting, and I'd just like to point out one thing that's brought out here. You cannot have Christ on the throne with anyone else. He does not share His glory with anyone. And so the implication of the gospel, and Alexander was right. These apostles are telling us that Jesus is greater than Artemis. And He is. There's no one as majestic or as powerful as Christ. And so when Peter says, I was an eyewitness of this majesty, he refers to this transfiguration. He talks about how Christ, he, Christ was unveiled of his flesh and he was able to see his glory. We read about it, that, that his face shone, that, that, that his, he was shining. He talks about how he heard the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That voice that came from a, a glowing cloud. Anyone ever seen a glowing cloud before? I mean, we think of dark clouds. This is a glowing cloud. And it actually says that when they saw and heard the voice of God there, they were greatly terrified. The actual term for greatly there means violently. There was an abject terror that they felt in that moment that they had never felt before. And so they violently threw themselves to the ground. That's the idea that's going on there. When they saw Jesus in all His glory unveiled. Now, why is that important, particularly as Peter is going to confront false teaching? There is a teaching that exists in the world today that essentially says you can live as you want to and there are no consequences. And Peter is saying, listen, Jesus is coming again and this is the Jesus who's coming again. One who is robed in Majestic glory. There's no one like him. 
And when I saw that glory and I was one of his disciples, how did I respond? I cowered in violent fear. So there is a great warning from Peter here that if you reject Christ, if you persist in rejecting him, or even if you pretend to accept him, but in reality reject him and continue to live in corruption and in the sin of this world, there is a day when Jesus will come again. And there is no place you can hide. There is no greater power you can appeal to. There is no refuge from his judgment. He is coming. And when he comes, fully arrayed in his majestic glory, all the nightmares and all the horror stories you have ever heard or seen will pale in comparison to his wrath. We can't ignore the wrath of God. And so Peter is saying these teachers who are coming and saying you can live however you want to, they are bringing the eternal damnation of God upon themselves and those who follow them. But then we think of that story where Peter is frightened to death at the sight of Christ's glory. And then what does Jesus do to his disciple? He comes over and he touches him. And he tells him to rise and to not be afraid. And so while for those who reject Christ, his return, his certain return is a fearful thing for his people, it is grace. It is hope that Christ Our coming King will call us to rise in His presence. So the message that Peter is bringing out here, the implications of what he says, they're not given just to frighten us, to tell us that there is a a certain painful reality for those who reject Christ, but rather calling us to know Christ more. To find hope in Him. My prayer for you today is that you do know this Christ by faith. That you can look to His coming with joy, not with fear. Jesus tells us that all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. He is a God who accepts all who come by faith in him. But he does not accept those who stubbornly refuse to bow the knee. 